Genesis, and we're going to begin in Genesis chapter 8 this morning. So uh, if you have your Bibles, we'll spend some time in Genesis 8 and Genesis chapter 9. And so uh, this, the title of this message that I have for you that the Lord prepared on my heart this week is Stepping Into a Brave New World. Stepping in to a brave new world. You know, here we are, June Halfway through 2020, I don't think anybody could have predicted or imagined that we would be where we are as a culture that we are today. Uh, one of the things that 2020 has forced me to do is think about our children right now for just one moment. Imagine you're a teenager, you're a 12-year-old, I have both, maybe you're younger than that. Think about what's going on in their head and their heart and their mind right now. You know, part of our responsibility as parents and grandparents and pastors and teachers and all those things that God, uh, the, the different roles that God has given us, is that, guys, we have not only the, the privilege to be able to teach and guide our children through these very difficult days, uh, but we have, the, we have the responsibility. It is, it, is our, it is a necessity that we as parents know how we're communicating with our kids in these days, because I'm going to be honest with you, I've talked to several young people. I've talked to people who are in college and in high school, and I'm going to tell you something. There is an, a feeling, an overwhelming feeling of fear and anxiety. They just do not know what the future holds. They do not know what, what their, their adult lives are going to be like. And so when you think about 2020 and where we are in this generation is I believe we are living in unparalleled times in human history. These are definitely very fearful Days And so we have a tremendous responsibility right now as a church to be able to speak into this generation and make sure that we are grounding them and, and, and giving them what they need to make sure that their faith is unmovable, unshakable in these days. Um, I think about the words of Jesus Christ himself. And, and if you think about Matthew 24 and... When Jesus begins to teach about the great tribulation and he begins to teach about the beginning of birth pains and the signs of the end uh, of the age and, and how we're to be able to recognize what's happening in our world around us. And, and you can just start reading through Matthew 24 and it's almost like we're beginning to see these things come to life before our very eyes. But there's something that Jesus says in Matthew 24 that, you know, really has greater significance to me right now. Do you realize that Jesus says this? He says, Woe to you, to those who are pregnant or nursing in those days. And, I, and it, it has whole new significance, significance to me now. Jesus is basically saying... That for young mothers who are expecting or who have young children, increasingly those situations and circumstances are going to become so much worse and so much more... Ch I, hate, I don't want to be a, a pessimist in any way this morning. But one of the things I continue to tell friends and family and church members and people as we have all of these conversations around COVID and, and now the, um, the, the racial tension that's, that's obvious in our culture today and, and just the, the, the whole political landscape. And you, you could just get into to so many different things. But here's the thing that I continue to, to challenge people with. Guys, we know what the book says. 
We know what the Word of God says. And the, the scripture that I read concerning the last days and the, the end of the age tells us something that we probably don't want to admit or don't want to hear. Is it, guys, it's only going to get worse. It is. That doesn't mean that God may not give us a respite or we may not have a season of you know, peace or a season of, of prosperity or whatever it may be. But, but guys, if you read the scripture and you look at what Jesus taught us and you look at what Paul teaches us and you look at what the prophets teach us in the Old Testament about the day of the Lord, things are only going to get worse. Amen. So how do we wrestle with that? How do we grapple with that? How do we teach our children who are looking at their future and saying, you know what, the, the future, my future may, may not look anything like the world that you grew up in or the world that I thought I was growing up in. You know, it may be completely different. And in many ways, it's a brave new world. And that's really what I wanted to, to kind of segue into as we think about what Noah and his family, as his sons and, and the three wives of his sons, stepped off the ark that day, guys. I'm going to tell you something. The world that they stepped into was nothing like the world that they left when they entered the ark. And so as we look at Genesis chapter 8 and 9, I got some things that I, I think will be edifying and helpful to you this morning. And this is really a, this is going to be a very fun message for me to preach because there's just some things in here that some of it's speculation. There's things that we have to speculate about. about. For instance, I wanted to show you the video about the Ice Age because we do have some very good models that help us to explain where did the Ice Age come from? How, you know, what, how does that fit? Again, where do the dinosaurs fit? Where does the Ice Age fit? Where do cavemen fit? And we're going to talk about that Today a little bit, but so these are answers that we need to have when it comes to a biblical worldview and a biblical understanding. But this is going to be a very interesting message, I believe, because it was interesting to me. And so the first thing that we're going to talk about is the very obvious, is that, is that the old world perished in the flood. And, and I use that word intentionally because Peter tells us in 2 Peter, he, he's, very, he's very specific in using this language in 2 Peter chapter 3. He says this, he says, For they deliberately overlooked this fact, 2 Peter 3, 5, that the heavens existed long ago and the earth that was formed out of water and through water by the word of God and that by means of these, the waters, okay, by means of these, the world that then existed was deluged, okay, it was flooded, it was completely overwhelmed with water and perished, in other words, Peter is reminding us that the world that Noah left and the world that Noah and his family stepped into were two completely different worlds. Nothing, very, very little was similar to what they would have experienced in those days. So let's look at Genesis chapter 8 and let's just get a handle on some of the key things that we see happening here in the flood story. Genesis chapter 8. And so let's just, let's just start in verse 1. I just want to read this to you. It says, God remembered Noah. He remembered all the beasts and livestock that were with him in the ark, and he made a wind blow over the earth, and the waters subsided. So this is now after the flood has, is beginning to subside. It says, The fountains of the deep and the windows of heavens were closed. The rain from the heavens was restrained, and the waters receded from the earth continually. At the end of 150 days, that would be about five months concerning uh, the Jewish calendar, 30-day months, 150 days, the waters had abated. Now look, and it says, in the seventh month, 
On the 17th day of the month, the ark came to rest on the mountains of Ararat. Okay? Seven months. So basically over 200 days, that ark was out there floating in the waters. And finally, it hit ground. And the Bible, tell, the Bible tells us that it, it grounded in the mountains of Ararat. Now, you may say, well, it's not Mount Ararat, singular, because a lot of people have now tried to go and explore Mount Ararat, which is the, the biggest volcano there in eastern Turkey, and they, they think maybe the ark landed on Mount Ararat. I don't believe that's the case because it says it's settled somewhere in the what? The mountains of Ararat. So somewhere in that general region, you can go, there's a lot of amazing research about, you know, can we rediscover Noah's Ark? Is it, is it still there? You know, and there's a lot of people who are out trying to find and discover Noah's Ark. One interesting guy, we'll just put a side note, a guy named Ron Wyatt. A lot of controversy around Ron Wyatt, some of the things that he has done and discovered, but he's a very fascinating individual. He believes he really found Noah's Ark uh, right there near the mount, in the mountains of Ararat. Matter of fact, the, the, the nation of Turkey set up a visitor center right next to it, and it says Noah's Ark. This is the visitor center for Noah's Ark. It's very fascinating, all the, some of the research and stuff that they've done, but now I'm not going to get off into that necessarily, but we do know that the Ark did settle and finally hit land. So there it is, 210 days, it finally hits land. And guys, it took another six months. Think about that. Another six months for the waters to completely dry on the face of the earth so that it was safe and so that Noah and his family and the animals could finally step off of the ark. When it comes to the biblical time scale, the, um, the ark probably, the flood was over somewhere around 2350 BC, give or take, depending on how you can look at some of the genealogies. But so we're talking 43 to 4,500 years ago is when the flood subsided. And so, again, looking at it from a biblical time scale, I hold to that young earth time scale. And so we're looking at, it's really not that long ago, even though 4,000 years is a long time, but compared to the evolutionary time scale, 4,000 years is really not that long ago. So, so there we go. The, the old, old world perished. And so the, the second thing is that, as I've already said before, Noah and his family stepped into a brave new world as humankind would be starting over from scratch. And let's think about that for just a second. They had to start over from scratch. Now, I'm going to give you some, some ideas about, again, some of this stuff is maybe speculation. Some of this stuff is conjecture where I, I'm just making an attempt to think, what would be different post-flood compared to pre-flood? Let me give you a couple of ideas. So... Earth's original landmass had changed in some way. As you saw in the video up there, that the huge fault lines uh, around the globe, it's kind of like the, the, the Earth itself was just split in two, and you would have had massive tectonic activity. And I think that there's a good evidence that maybe some of the, the continent, maybe there was one supercontinent that, that split apart and began to collide with each other. And I think that happened very rapidly. Not over millions of years, but there's, there's great evidence that this would have happened rapidly. And so the, the earth was divided in a sense. And that accounts for how the mountains ranges were formed. Guys, I don't believe Mount Everest and these huge, very high mountain ranges were on the earth prior to the flood. Those things happened rapidly. They were pushed up, as it were, as the tectonic activity happened over the flood. So now you all of a sudden you have these huge mountain ranges. And you say, well, why is that important? Well, mountains are uninhabitable. 
They're, they're natural barriers. You can't cross these mountain ranges. Plus, they change weather patterns as well, right? And so you had mountains. You have deep seas and ocean trenches that weren't there before. You have deserts that begin to form, like the, the Sahara Desert. Look at Australia. 90% of Australia is nothing but a what? It's a desert. It's uninhabitable. And so there's places in parts of the world that became uninhabitable because all of these changes began to take place. And that's going to be important for us in just a moment as we get a little bit deeper into this. But you see that there would have been continual tectonic activity, uh, volcanoes. Uh, Some believe that the magnetic field of the earth was disrupted. Some believe that the earth could have even got knocked off its axis a little bit. That would have changed the, the rotation of the earth. You know, again, some of these things are interesting to think about. You can go research them as I have, but we know the atmosphere changed. We know that weather patterns change. We're going to talk about the ice age here in just a minute. And so we have residual catastrophic conditions. So it's like the earth, think about it. If the earth went under the greatest cataclysmic episode and event in human history, it wouldn't have just stopped all of a sudden. The earth would have been seizing with more earthquakes and volcanic eruptions and shifting of the Uh, the tectonic plates and some of those things. So it would have taken decades, perhaps centuries, for the earth to reach some state of equilibrium where things kind of settled down again. So this was a whole new world. I mean, you can imagine stepping off the ark. It's hard enough as it is to say, where do we start over? But then you have all of these other environmental issues to deal with. Obviously, animal life would have changed. Plant life would have changed. Think about it. You step off the ark, there's not a tree to be found. There are no crops you know, these are things that have to start over from the scratch and, re, and, and regrow and be replenished on the earth. Obviously, the relationship between man and animals changed. We see that in Genesis chapter 9. You can see that. In, I think I read it last week, but it says this in Genesis 9 too. It says, The fear of you and the dread of you shall be upon every beast of the earth and every bird of the heavens and everyone, everything that creeps on the ground and all the fish of the sea. Into your hands they are delivered. Every moving thing that lives shall be food for you. As I gave you the green plants, I now give you everything. Guys, that's very important. Prior to the flood, it is apparent that mankind ate primarily a vegetarian diet. Post-flood, all of a sudden, now think about it. Why do you think it is that the Lord allowed men to begin to eat meat immediately after the flood? Because it was out of necessity, right? What else are they going to eat? They had to to have some type of sustenance. They had to have something to eat. They they didn't have time necessarily to plant crops and, 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 you know, build olive groves and do all these things. It takes time for seasons for these things to grow so that they can produce food for them to eat. They had to have something to eat right then, right now. So the Lord said, listen, I'm going to change some things up and now you're going to be able to hunt and to fish. And you can eat the meat. Well, obviously, that changed the relationship between men and animals where it seems to before the flood to some extent. Now, we know the, the, even before the flood, the, fall, the effects of the fall were on, on uh, the earth and the curse uh, was on the earth. But it seems to, to, to imply that the relationship between man and beast changed after the flood so that men were afraid of animals and animals were naturally afraid of men. That's significant. So again, you're thinking about a whole new world that you step into. These are some changes that definitely took place. And then here's something I want you to think about. All the knowledge, all the human ingenuity, every piece of invention, every innovation 
necessary to reestablish human society and civilization was preserved on the ark. Noah and his three sons and their wives and his wife, they were the, the eight people that were left. They were the only ones that were left and they had to have retained any knowledge, innovation, invention, ingenuity, anything that would have been used to rebuild human civilization had to be preserved on that ark. It's fascinating for us to think about. And of course those things were passed down to the next generation until the Tower of Babel when the nations were confused and the languages uh, were, were confused and they were dispersed and they would have taken this knowledge with them wherever it is that they would go. So it's pretty interesting. Now let's talk about the Ice Age for a second. Because there is great evidence for an Ice Age and a lot of people get hung up on this because they're saying, you know, the Bible doesn't talk about an Ice Age. Well, I think the Bible does give some, some, impl- some implications that there was a change in the climate. There truly was climate change in Noah's day. Real climate change, okay? Significant climate change. So there is substantial evidence that the earth endured an ice age for perhaps hundreds of years after the flood, okay? And and the video kind of helped explain how this would have happened. Remember, hot oceans, volcanic activity, the oceans would have warmed. You had aerosols and dust in the atmosphere because of all the volcanic eruptions would have uh, reflected some of the radiation from the sun. So you had cooling on the continents. You had warm oceans. They're giving evaporation, creating massive amounts of ice and snow to fall in the northern and the southern regions of the world. Guys, we still have evidence of the Ice Age today because we have the north and the south what? Poles. And there are still glaciers up in parts of Greenland and Canada and Siberia and those kind of things. So we still see evidence today. Something changed after the flood. And yes, there was an Ice Age. Listen to what it says in Genesis 8.22. If you have, if you have your Bible there. Genesis 8.22. And we, we read past these things sometimes just just breeze right past it without thinking about what it says. Genesis 8.22, it says, While the earth remains, seed time and harvest, cold and heat, summer and winter, day and night shall not cease. Now I'm going to talk a little bit about what that means from a spiritual perspective at the end, but right now I want to talk about it from a practical perspective. I want you all to consider this for just a second. Noah and his family, in my estimation, experienced the very first winter. I don't believe mankind even knew what winter was before the flood. I think the conditions of the earth were optimal. They were perfect temperatures all year round. There may have been a little bit of, you know, some cooling and some warming in different areas of the earth, but one of the things that we know is that even if you were to go to Antarctica today, which is a massive continent on the South Pole that is covered in what? Covered in ice. And, they, and there's people that are doing all kind of research down in Antarctica to try to figure out what is it about this mysterious continent on the South Pole? You know, was it ever inhabited by human beings? Well, as they begin to do excavations and digs in Antarctica, guess what they're finding in Antarctica? They're finding fossils of animals that lived in tropical climates, and they're finding plants and vegetations that could only grow in what kind of a climate? A tropical climate. Today it's covered in ice. There was a point in place in our past when Antarctica was probably a tropical climate. Today it's covered in ice. 
And so this is a, and again, it's uninhabitable, right? So, so a massive continent on the, on, the, on the earth is uninhabitable because it's still covered in ice. And so we see that there is great evidence for an ice age in the recent past. Now, listen to what Job said. And I think Job, who is, you know, if you look at the book of Job, he is, he's, it is considered one of the oldest written books in the Old Testament, if not the oldest, probably Job was probably uh, a contemporary of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. They believe he was probably a contemporary of that the, the, the patriarchs of those days. I believe Job lived through the Ice Age. Listen to what he said in Job 38. I'm going to read a couple of passages to you. Job 38. Now, the Lord is talking to Job... And he, he, again, he, he gives him some rhetorical questions and things like that. He's challenging Job, but he makes some interesting comments in Job 38. I'm going to read verses 22 and 23. The Lord says, Have you entered the storehouses of snow? Or have you seen the storehouses of the hell, which I've reserved for the time of trouble, for the day of battle and war? Verse 28 and 29. From whose womb did the ice come forth? And who has given birth to the frost of heaven? The waters become hard like stone, and the face of the deep is frozen. It seems like to me that that generation that lived in maybe the two or three hundred years or more after the flood experienced massive climate change that produced this time called the Ice Age. Now, why is that important? Now, let's talk about cavemen for just a second. You see, an evolutionary time scale shows you that, you know, there's apes walking on their knuckles, and then the next guy is kind of standing upright a little bit more. And then the next guy is, you know, standing upright. And then they evolved into humans. And that's how we're to trace the human ancestry of the descent of man or the ascent of man, whatever you want to call it, is that we, evolutionary theory proposes that mankind evolved from apes. Okay, that's common evolutionary theory. About 200,000 years ago, man became his own species, and it had evolved from some type of ape-like creature. And then when you see what the popular culture, how it portrays cavemen, is that they portray cavemen as what? Ape-like, right? Very primitive, knocking a rock up against a stone, beating them head, you know, knocking the lady over the head with a club and dragging her to his cave and... And all this kind of stuff. I mean, that's the, that's the image of cavemen that we get. And they try to tie that into the evolutionary model. And guys, I'm going to tell you something. There were cavemen. But they were human. And let me tell you why. Let me explain from a biblical perspective why we can find caves all over the world that shows evidence that there were cave dwellers living in those caves. They painted on the walls. They, they, they have artifacts and stone and... And those kind of things. Think about it for just a second. You just get off the ark. The whole world has been changed. All of a sudden, you have different seasons and temperatures. Guess what? Before the ark, you could plant a, a, a garden any time of the year. All of a sudden, after the ark, you only have a limited what? Limited window to plant a garden. You have seed time and harvest. All of a sudden, you've got to figure out the first thing that you've got to figure out. Noah and his family had to determine, okay, we've got to find a place to live. We've got to find some food. And we've got to find some water. And every generation after that had a very difficult time to navigate the new world that they were living in because they would have had to find shelter immediately. 
Guess what? When I'm getting off the ark and I'm a few generations removed from Noah and the ark, what's the number one optimal place to find shelter? I'm probably going to go find a cave. And I can find a place where the temperature is the same temperature all year round. I can be protected from wild animals now that are roaming about. I have a place to protect my family. I have shelter long enough for me to do what I need to do. And yes, they would have been uh, probably working with tools and things like that that were, in our perspective, primitive at the very beginning because they had to do what they had to do and, and use what they had just to get by, just to survive. So the number one goal after the flood, guys, was simply survival. We just got to survive this thing until we can get in a better position and begin to rebuild human civilization. So that's, what, that's the explanation for cavemen, but there's no such thing as some missing link between apes and men that we call Neanderthals or Cro-Magnon men or whatever it is that you want to say. Guys, these were human beings post-flood who are trying to survive. Amen. That's what the cavemen explanation is really all about. It was a matter of life or death, limited food, they had to survive. It only makes sense, right? And so some of these things now, when, the reason I, I take time for that because it puts everything into perspective from a biblical point of view. Okay? Now, let's go back to Genesis 8. And I, I want to show you just a really neat little caveat here that I think will encourage you. Look at Genesis 8, 6. It says, at the end of 40 days, Noah opened the window of the ark that he had made, and he sent forth a raven. And it went to and fro until the waters were dried up from the earth. But then he sent forth a what? He sent forth a dove to see if the waters had subsided from the face of the ground. But the dove found no place to set her foot, so she returned. So he put out his hand and took her and brought her into the ark with him. And he waited another seven days. He sent her out. She came back in the evening and in her mouth was a freshly plucked olive leaf. Interesting. So Noah knew that the waters had subsided from the earth. And then he waited another seven days. He sent forth the dove and she did not return to him anymore. Now, guys, I love looking at the scripture literally. And I also love looking at symbolic application, spiritual application of the scripture. And I just couldn't help but recognize that the dove is unique in scripture. Some of you already know where I'm going with this because there's another episode and another event in scripture that mentions a dove and it involved the life and ministry of who? Jesus Christ. So let's just take a minute to turn there to, to, to Matthew chapter 3 because I think that there's something here that maybe gives us a little bit of a perspective of how God was at work with Noah and his family before the flood. Look at Matthew 3, the baptism of Jesus, verse 13. It says, Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to John to be baptized by him. John would have prevented him saying, I need to be baptized by you and you come to me. But Jesus said, let it be so, for this is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. Then he consented, and when Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up from the, the water. Okay, so you have water, the baptism of Jesus. And behold, the heavens were opened to him, and he saw the Spirit of God 
descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. And behold, a voice from heaven said, This is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. I believe that the releasing of the dove in Genesis chapter 8 can be symbolically taken as representative, as a representation of whom? The Holy Spirit. Now, if we remember Genesis 1, it says the earth was without form and void, and who was hovering over the waters in the face of the deep? The Spirit of God. He was there at the beginning hovering, brooding like a bird. The, the, the language is almost like a hummingbird brooding as it, as it takes a drink of nectar out of your little hummingbird feed. That's kind of, the, the Holy Spirit was just hovering over the waters, being ready, prepared for God and His creative work so He could empower and bring life to the earth through that. And here we are, now the earth has been completely deluged with water again. And I just don't think there's a coincidence that the Bible talks about Noah sending out a what? a dove to go over the waters, and at one point the dove did not come back. I believe symbolically what you see here is that the Lord is telling Noah and reminding Noah, my spirit is going before you to prepare the way. My spirit is necessary to bring renewal and rebirth and regeneration. Do you know that it's necessary for the Spirit to bring rebirth and renewal and regeneration to replenish? That's exactly what was about to happen as Noah and his family stepped off of the ark. And guess what? It just so happens that there are eight people who step off of the ark. And if you know anything about numerology and the Hebrew thought and Hebrew mind, the number eight is directly associated with rebirth and new beginnings. And there's no coincidences in Scripture. And so here we see a beautiful picture. As the dove was sent out ahead of Noah and his family, God was sending them a, a reminder, a visual reminder, just as Jesus was given a visual reminder of the Spirit descending upon him. God was saying, I'm with you. I'm going before you to prepare the way for you. And I will provide everything that you need. Verse 22, excuse me, 820. Look at verse 20, back up just a little bit. Genesis 8.20. Then, so, so, so the family gets off the ark. The, 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 the earth had dried up enough for them to finally step off of the ark. And the first thing that Noah does is build a what? He builds an altar. Fascinating. He built an altar to the Lord and took some of every clean animal, of every clean bird, and offered burnt offerings on the altar. And when the Lord smelled the pleasing aroma, the Lord said, I will never again curse the ground because of man, and for the intention of man's heart is evil from his youth, but neither will I ever again strike down every living creature as I have done. Now this is your principle for this, and I love it. Here, here's your spiritual principle for the day. If you, if you didn't get anything else that you've gotten from so far today, please get this. You ready? Before Noah went to work, he stopped to worship. Now think about what I just told you. Everything had changed after the flood. Noah and his family, they are pressing. They're struggling. They know that they've got to find shelter. They've got to find fresh water. They've got to find some food. They've got to come up with a plan. If anything, Noah and his family, they had to get to work. They had plenty of work to do, did they not? And yet before Noah does any work, 
What's he do? He stops to worship. He stops to build an altar to the Lord. Now, there's a couple of things here. Number one, the pattern of atonement is carried on post-flood. When we go back into the early accounts of Genesis, we see Adam and Eve were the first to understand the necessary need for substitutionary atonement because after they sinned, who clothed them with animal skins? The Lord did. That means an animal had to be what? Sacrificed in their, on their behalf. They understood they were guilty, they were deserving of death, but God sacrificed a substitute in their place so that they could be forgiven and restored unto God. We see that with Cain and Abel. Abel brings the fat offerings of his flock to offer on the altar to the Lord, which is an acceptable sacrifice. And here we see in Noah, Noah also carries the pattern of atonement to his children so that that pattern can be continued on through Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, ultimately all the way to the children of Israel, but here and ultimately, ultimately to the cross of Jesus Christ. That's the picture of atonement. But we see here a very important principle, guys, and I'm going to share it with you because I struggle with this. How many of us, we wake up and we get our calendars out and our phone starts to go off, we turn on the TV and we hop in the car and we grab our coffee to go, and we hit the ground running every single day and we know we have so much work waiting for us to do and it just seems like we get in the hustle and bustle and the business of life and we haven't stopped for one minute just to say, here I am, Lord. Here I am. I know I, have my, I know I have my mission every day. I know what I want to do every day. I know I have my plans and my, ske- my schedule and my calendar and all the work that I have to do every day. But how many times do I stop and do we stop and say, Lord, not my will be done, but, but yours. Maybe you have something radically different for me to do today, Lord. I don't know. But unless we're putting ourselves in a position daily to worship the Lord, to be still before God, and to seek Him before we go to work, guys, sometimes I think we have missed so many of God's most tremendous blessings in our life because we simply go to work before we stop to worship. Our priorities are upside down. That's why Jesus said it this way. Don't worry about what you're going to eat. Don't worry about what you're going to wear. I know what you need. Even the pagans run after those things. But what did Jesus say? He said, but I need you to seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness. And all these things that you're worried about, day-to-day living, all that will be given Unto you, I will provide for you. Amen. It is the test of faith that we have every single day to say, God, do I trust you enough to know you will provide for me if I put you first? He said, don't worry about tomorrow. Because tomorrow has enough what? It's got enough trouble of its own. If we hadn't learned that in 2020, I don't know what else we've learned, right? Well, I don't even know what tomorrow is going to bring anymore, right? Don't even worry. Don't be anxious. Don't be anxious about your life. Don't be anxious about these things. We go to keep our priorities straight, which is to keep God as a number one place on the throne of our heart each and every single day. I'm going to mention this because it's a little side note. I was thinking about Noah building an altar. You know, you kind of got the picture of the arcs in the background and the earth is finally dried up enough and you kind of have the rainbow in the background. We'll get to that in, in maybe a week or so. And he builds this altar and he dedicates the earth, the new earth, the post-flood earth, he dedicates that to who? To God. 
He's saying, Lord, I'm, I, I have nothing without you. I can't do any of this without you. I'm going to stop and put you first. I'm going to want to approach you in, in the acceptable way. I want to have communion with you. I want to hear from you. I want to walk with you. I want to talk with you. This is Noah's example. It made me think of a couple of examples about our nation's history, to be honest with you. Guys, no matter what you think or whatever you've been taught in revisionist history, guys, there were some people who came to this land, colonial settlers, pilgrims, whatever you want to call them. And I'm going to tell you something, guys. They claimed this land in a very unique and special way for the gospel of Jesus Christ and for the glory of God. Now, I know in today's culture, in politically correct culture, that that history is being rewritten because they want us to believe that these settlers and pilgrims were nothing more than a bunch of thieves and robbers who brought diseases and killed people and just created all this kind of chaos. And, and you know, was some of that stuff happening during the colonial period and the settling period? Yeah, some of that stuff definitely happened. But I want to give you a couple of examples that are interesting to me. I thought it might be interesting to you. Think about what happened in Jamestown, 1607. The first Virginia settlers landed in America, April 1607. What's the first thing that they did? They erected a what? A wooden cross on the shore. They fell down on their faces. And Reverend Hunt led the 149 men of Virginia Company in prayer, thanking God for their safe journey and recommitting themselves to God's plan and purpose for the new world, which was ultimately to bring the gospel of Jesus Christ to a new people. Amen. Fast forward to 1620 with the pilgrims in Plymouth Colony. They had left political oppression in England and in, and in the Netherlands. And they go, and here's their statement of faith. They want to freely worship God. They want to raise godly children. And they want to share the truths of the Christian gospel with others. And so they land here on Plymouth Bay. And when the pilgrims came ashore, the first thing that they did is fell to their knees and thanked God of reaffirming their continuing reliance upon him. They had plenty of work to do. They had a whole new continent to settle. But these men and women, uniquely, sovereignly, providentially chosen by God, they worshipped. And there's no mistaking, guys, and you can say whatever you want to say about the United States of America, but it has been the greatest, most blessed and free and prosperous country that I believe has probably ever graced this world. And it's only because like that that recognized that this land was to be claimed for the gospel of Jesus Christ and for the glory of God. Amen. That's what this land was claimed for. Very interesting. Here's the last thing I want to share with you. and I'm, I'm stealing this from, from my dear brother, Dean. Because Dean taught Brother John's Sunday school class last week. And he was teaching from Genesis 8.22. And I was like, man, that's just too good. I got, I got to share that again. And so, Brother Dean, I hope that you don't mind. But look, in, in Genesis 8.22, here's what I want you to do. This is very practical stuff, guys. And I think this may help all of us put this whole thing into perspective. Where we are today as a church, as a country, as individuals, as a community... 
everything right here really applies to what it said here in Genesis 8.22. Now, I just shared Genesis 8.22 with you to give you some evidence that Noah and his family probably experienced the first winter. There would have been now seasons of planting and harvesting that, that it would have been much more difficult to grow food in the post-flood world. All those things are true, but now let's take it from a symbolic perspective. Is that just as certain as the seasons will change... We are sure to experience different spiritual seasons in our life. Amen. Let's talk about them. You ready? Genesis 8.22. While the earth remains, seed time. Seed time. Makes me think about Jesus, right? The sower and the what? And the seed. That we are called as God's witnesses, we are called as disciples and followers of Jesus Christ. That our primary responsibility while we are on this earth is to sow seeds of the gospel. Every time you share the word of God and you share the gospel and you share your testimony with somebody else, guys, you are sowing a what? You're sowing a seed. And God didn't say, he said, be indiscriminate about how you share share and you sow the seed. You just put it out there. You broadcast it. You don't know what kind of a heart it's going to fall on. You don't know what kind of a ground it's going to fall on. That's not for us to determine or decide, guys. But there should be times in our Christian life when we're sowing seeds of the gospel. And if, it, if it's ever been a time for us to be, have opportunities to share the good news with the world that is fearful and afraid and hopeless and despairing and confused, it is today when we have the peace and the good news of the Lord Jesus Christ, guys, we need to begin sowing seeds again. Individually, not just hearing a preacher preach on Sunday morning, but having gospel conversations in our homes and in our neighborhoods and in our schools and in our workplace, guys, sowing seed. We all need to be in season of sowing seed. But then there's also a time of harvest. It's amazing the way that God works because Jesus even told his disciples, he says, you know what, sometimes you will harvest a soul for a seed that you did not even plant or sow. And that's the way that God works. It's amazing if we we'll just have those conversations and love our neighbor enough to share the gospel. Sometimes people will just drop down and, and give their life to Jesus Christ and receive him just like that. And we're like, what did I do? I didn't even say anything. That's because God prepares hearts. And if we're willing to go out and work the harvest, he needs laborers for the harvest. And so, guys, there is a spiritual harvest that God is preparing. But listen, if there's no workers, if there's no laborers, then the harvest never gets taken. So we have a seed time. We have a harvest. Listen, sometimes, guys, we just go through cold spells. Anybody there right now? Isn't it funny how when COVID hit, you know, we're like, man, this is going to be great have all this time to spend with the Lord and just just grow in this deep spiritual season. Anybody really get that? Somebody may have. Some of us may have. I I really thought it was just going to be like this tremendous season of growth. I'm going to be honest with you guys. This has been a very cold time for me. It's been kind of depressing. It's been kind of empty. There's times as God's children when we're indifferent, we lack love, uh, we feel just cold. We just, we just feel distant. Anybody else identify with that? You know what? Jesus, again, Matthew 24, he says, In the last days before the great tribulation, because lawlessness will increase, the love of many will grow 
cold. And you look around our world today and you see pictures of lawlessness. And it makes you, it makes the love in your heart grow cold. Because then you start getting into who do I trust? What can I do? You know, where can I go? Am I going to be in danger? All, that kind of, all those things are, are part of what it means to go through a cold spiritual season, guys. But, but that's why Jesus, when he came to the church at Ephesus, he said, listen, in the book of Revelation, he said, listen, all these things you're doing great, but the one thing I have against you is that you have lost, you have abandoned your first love. Do not let your heart get cold. Sometimes we have a season of heat. Man, don't you love it when you run into somebody who's just on fire for the Lord? And then we get them into church and then they cool down a little bit, right? Isn't that the way it usually goes? Man, you're, you're too on fire for me, man. You're making me uncomfortable. Right? That zeal, that, that fire that you just, you're just on fire for the Lord. You're bold. You're unashamed. You just want to tell everybody that you know about Jesus because you're so on fire with him, guys. I pray that we have more seasons of heat in our spiritual lives. And then we have some seasons of summer. And when I think about summer is that we should have enduring seasons of growth. There should be spiritual growth in our life where we're bearing fruit and we're becoming more mature in the faith. That's what it means to have a summer of a summer season of growth and maturity, bearing fruit. The summertime is beautiful. Uh, I was talking to Mr. Dick a little bit earlier. Our, our gardens are starting to produce what? Some fruit, right? If you've been planting a garden, you know the summer's coming. That heat is good, and you're starting to see some fruit, and you're getting ready to have some vegetables and getting ready to have some, uh, some great, uh, great harvest from your garden. That's what it's like to be in a season of summer as a believer, that we should be bearing what? Bearing fruit. But then sometimes, guys... We have a winter where we're stagnant, we're dormant, we don't grow very much, we're not bearing much fruit. And you know what? That's okay to be there, but we just can't what? Stay there. And then there's day and there's night. The joy of walking with the Lord in the day where there's light and there's truth and there's love and sincerity and integrity, all these beautiful things. But then also understanding, guys, that many people are bearing the sorrow and the devastation and the anguish of the soul, having to go through that anguish of the night. And that's why God calls us to bear one another's burdens. Everybody in this room is in one or other of those seasons. And so as I ask our worship team to come back up and we get ready to sing and close out this, this service, here's your encouraging word. Here's your application for this morning. I don't know much, but I know this. Is that you can look at all of these different seasons, spiritual seasons that you or I may be in, and you may be in a very good season and you may be in a very... Very bad season. You may be in the summertime. You may be in the wintertime. It may be daytime in your life with the Lord. You may be in the dark anguish of the night. But listen to me. No matter where you are or what season you find yourself in right now, I can tell you this and promise you this and encourage you for this. Seek first the kingdom of his God and his righteousness and trust that he will provide everything, everything that you need financially, spiritually, Emotionally, relationally, physically, 
mentally, we go and seek Him first and let Him and trust Him to provide everything that we need. Guys, it's a, it's a, it's a scary world out there. I know that there's really nothing new under the sun. I understand that. But guys, we are we are racing toward the last days. Amen. I'm talking about there's a train rolling and it's out of control and it is moving right now and it cannot be stopped and it's heading toward the return of Jesus Christ. And guys, we are rolling and racing to the time of the end. And it is getting so near and so close. And we need this now more than ever. Turn off the news and seek the Lord. Amen. Turn off the news. I'm serious. Delete your social media if you have to. And seek the Lord. We need Him now more than ever. Guys, if you need to come pray, if you need to pray where you are, if you need counsel, if you need to talk, whatever it may be, I never want to leave this place without giving you the option to be able to either come to faith in Jesus Christ. Maybe you need to trust Him for the very first time. Maybe you're experiencing a season of, of night or darkness right now or cold. Maybe you just need encouragement. I don't know. Maybe you want to share testimony. Maybe you need counsel or prayer. Guys, we're here for this time, at this time, for you to get what you need without before you leave this place, right? I want you to know that. So I'm going to pray, and we're going to sing, and I'll be right here up front if you need me. Father God in heaven, I want to thank you. Thank you, Jesus, for your presence, for your peace, for your provision. Give us faith to trust you, Lord, when we look around and there's confusion and fear and anxiety and chaos and and there's so much work to be done, and it just everything is so overwhelming right now, God. All I know to do is to be still. Daily, Lord. First thing in the morning, at midnight, in the middle of the day, for us to get along with you, God, for us to hear your voice, for us to worship you in spirit and truth, for us to, to be still before you, for us to seek your face, to truly get a word from you, to truly feel your presence, Lord. We need you, God. We, we desperately need you. Help us now in the name of Jesus. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen. Would you stand together as we sing?